well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. It's good to have you with us. Coming up on the uh, program in just a, a moment or two, we're going to talk with attorney Rachel Seatack uh, from Cincinnati. Now, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I had actually asked Rachel to join me on the program several days ago uh, to talk about a fantastic column that uh, Rachel wrote at the uh, Cincinnati Inquirer on uh, Second Amendment history is black history. Uh, but then yesterday, we got the bombshell news from the Ninth Circuit. They finally handed down their en banc decision in a case called Young versus Hawaii. This is a challenge to Hawaii's ban on open carry. Basically, a license is required in order to open carry in Hawaii, just as a license is required to concealed carry in Hawaii. The problem is that the average citizen can't get one of those licenses. You can't get a license to carry concealed. You can't get a license to carry openly. The Ninth Circuit, several years ago, in a case called Peruta versus San Diego, ruled that the Second Amendment does not protect a, a constitutional right to bear a concealed firearm. And so that's where things stood in the Ninth Circuit for the last couple of years. Well, yesterday, and it, you know, and again, it, it, it kind of raises the question, all right, so if, if the Second Amendment doesn't protect the right to carry a concealed firearm, well, then it must protect the right to bear arms openly, right? I mean, it's the right to keep, it's the right to bear. Well, no, according to the Ninth Circuit. In the decision that they handed down yesterday, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the Second Amendment actually doesn't protect a, a general right to bear arms at all. This is a bizarre decision uh, that relies on, you know, 19th century Hawaiian law to ignore and nullify the Second Amendment uh, in the state. The Ninth Circuit basically said, look, this is a longstanding tradition. Hawaii has had a longstanding tradition uh, prohibiting the carrying of firearms. And since Justice Scalia has said that, you know, longstanding traditions uh, don't necessarily run afoul of the Constitution and, and, and can be, you know, presumptively lawful, then that means that this is hunky-dory. It's okay. There's no violation of your constitutional rights, even though there is no way for you to bear arms, and the Second Amendment protects the right to do so. So we do talk with Rachel Seatack about her column in the Cincinnati Inquirer, which I think actually dovetails quite nicely, given the, the history of gun control in this country and how it has been used to disenfranchise minorities and other disfavored groups of Americans from exercising their constitutional rights. But we also talked with Rachel about the Ninth Circuit decision, what she thinks about it, and where the Supreme Court might go. Take a look and a listen. Rachel, thank you so much for coming to the program today. It's so good to talk with you. Thank you, Cam, for having me. Absolutely. So have you had a chance to read the Ninth Circuit's decision in Young versus Hawaii yet? I know it was like 215 pages long. I mean, this was a, a really long decision. It's a long one and an unfortunate one. Yeah. It, 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 you know, let me ask you, because I'm not an attorney, but it seems to me like um, when I was back in school, if I didn't really know, if I had to like write an essay and, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to say, sometimes I would just like throw words out there and I would just, you know, pat it, right? In, in hopes that, okay, well, if I write enough, maybe it'll be convincing. I kind of got that sense looking at this opinion that basically disregards the Second Amendment in favor of 
you know, laws that were on the books before Hawaii was even a territory, much less a, a, a state. Absolutely. Um, what we're seeing in this latest like faux constructionism is that the judges come into the decision knowing what the end result is that they desire. And then they kind of shape history to point towards the answer that they want. Whereas when you look at a true constructionist like Scalia, what he does is trace the history to arrive at the correct answer, even if it's something that he does he didn't agree with. And um, we see quite the opposite here, a lot of uh, grasping at straws and throwing in everything and the kitchen sink. Yeah, except they left out some really important history. It, you know, it seemed like they almost were like picking and choosing what they wanted to talk about. And so we hear a lot about, you know, Hawaii law in the 19th century, but we don't hear anything about constitutional amendments in, in the United States in the 19th century, like the, the 14th Amendment, uh, which, you know, if you go back and you look at the historic record, it's clear that, that one of the purposes of the 14th Amendment was to ensure that newly freed slaves and black Americans possessed the right to keep and bear arms. Absolutely. Uh this picking and choosing of history to arrive at the conclusion that they wanted um, is the same thing that I've seen in numerous accounts that are picking and choosing what we hear about the civil rights movement, the reconstruction era, and the entire history of the Second Amendment, not just the Second Amendment, but statutes like state level laws and local laws that were limiting as well. You had a, a great column in the Cincinnati Inquirer just a few days ago. Uh, the headline, Second Amendment History is Black American History. Uh, and you quote uh, some civil rights greats, uh, including Frederick Douglass, who says, the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. And when we look right now at the landscape of Second Amendment jurisprudence and, and gun laws, I, I think we see even today that there are classes of people who are, in fact, denied uh, their right to keep and bear arms. You look at some of the subjective issue laws in places like New York State, uh, California, the, 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 the laws in Hawaii that hypothetically allow somebody to possess a concealed carry license, but they're never actually granted. Rachel, is it your contention that these laws have been used? to discriminate uh, against disfavored Americans uh, over the course of U.S. history? Yes, Cam. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot, especially in recent current events, about broad implications of systemic racism. But here we have an example where the, the statistics show this is a disproportionate amount of um, Black incarceration and arrest rates for these crimes. And that is a specific and um, an actually addressable area of systemic racism that we could argue is affecting uh, minority groups in the same way that it's been affecting minority groups throughout history. Why? Um, I'm sorry, here I have something just. There we go. Um, so, so, so let me let me play devil's advocate for a second here. Why should we not simply try to ban guns for everybody? Uh, if the, the gun laws right now are being, you know, disproportionately used against uh, minorities, why, why would we not simply say, OK, nobody gets to own a gun. Nobody gets to carry a gun. In that way, we're all equally disarmed. 
Yes, um, so I was really surprised to read that uh, this concept of um, only thing that stops a good guy, a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. It's often been written off and attributed to uh, Wayne LaPierre, but it actually was also uh, a principle that was stated by Malcolm X. And um, what happens when we take away guns from people who are willing to comply with the laws, who are going through the background checks, who are jumping through all the hoops to make sure that they can carry out their Second Amendment rights, is that we're left with those who only have procured their weapons through the black market. And when you're looking at that group of people who are willing to get guns illegally, they're not really willing to follow any of the laws that are on the books concerning violence. And so the real issue becomes not gun not gun violence as has been stated by the other side but it actually becomes just gun possession period uh it seems that the the goal is that no one possesses a weapon because we already have laws on the books that prevent gun violence and the people who aren't following um the so-called uh gun safety measures gun control measures those are a lot of the times the same people who aren't following um the gun violence laws you know, I think it's a really good point. Um, and I, I'm actually, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion that the violence prevention movement and the gun control movement actually have two very different goals. Uh, violence prevention, it's right there. It's about preventing violence. And you look at a lot of the organizations and the, the local activists who are, you know, putting programs in place, they're not calling for new laws. Because they know that new laws lead to more policing, lead to more incarceration, particularly for nonviolent offenses. Exactly. So they they want to you know drill down and say, okay, look, let, let's let's reach those folks who are most likely to offend and frankly most likely to be victims of violence, and let's try to stop that cycle by talking and dealing with those individuals. Whereas the gun control movement, as you say, it's about getting rid of the guns. It's about you know, well, if we have a gun free society, then uh, then it stands to reason that we would have less quote unquote gun violence. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think that that conflation between those two groups um, can almost be strategic because as you said, the, the people that are calling for gun safety, it's not a policy movement. They're in the streets and doing community initiatives to inform kids on ways to avoid the prison to school to prison pipeline, poverty to prison pipeline. They're doing things in their community that are hands on and grassroots. What we see then is that the gun control movement attempts to conflate those two by calling their reforms common sense gun safety reforms, when really it's plain old gun control. It's the same soup warmed over. They've just given it a different name. Do you think that um, that the violence prevention uh, movement is starting to recognize that? Because, as you say, the, 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 there has been this sort of strategic alliance, I think, on the part of gun control groups to, um, I think, kind of curry favor and to to remain in good standing uh, within the the coalition, particularly on the left, where I, I think, honestly, I mean, I, I believe that the gun control movement is sort of the bastard stepchild of, of the left, because ultimately... <laughs> I think their goals are are opposed not only to, you know, uh, what many conservatives want, but also what what many folks on the left want as well. Uh, and so I think they've sort of tried to shoehorn their way in saying, no, 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 we, we support these these violence prevention organizations, too, even though that's sort of an afterthought. Um, do you think that the organizers of these these violence prevention uh, associations and these groups and these programs, 
Are they starting to recognize the conflict between violence prevention and gun control? You know, Kim, I haven't looked into that a lot, but, you know, as we're discussing it, I'm seeing a lot of potential to where there can be a lot of education and just connecting some dots that aren't really being put out there. As you've said, the more that you increase, um, you know, police contact, the more that you increase the laws that police are required to then enforce that are on the books, you know, that's creating more contact with those communities and not in a community policing way, but in a law enforcement way, which is the opposite of what uh, you know a lot of groups are calling for. And so if someone could come in to educate, we can get the word out that there's actually a connection between having more gun control laws on the books that then increases arrest rates, increases incarceration rates for offenses that, you know, conceal and carry laws, uh, possession laws, those aren't inherently violent offenses. Those are offenses that are um, technical and that are based on uh, the laws that are on the book. They're not because of someone being hurt in that instance. And so that is adding to the poverty to prison pipeline because it's more technicalities that the average person who's not a lawyer, who's not into Second Amendment law, who's not keeping up with what their government is putting on the books, they're going to be the ones caught in the crosshairs. Absolutely. And this may be, you know, honestly, I mean, this may be uh, something that Second Amendment advocates have to be more proactive in doing uh, instead of just complaining about stuff, actually, you know, reaching out and engaging those organizations because, you know, I... I I live in rural Virginia. I'm a white guy in my 40s. You know, I, 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 I don't have a lot of personal experience um, with living in a, a place that with very restrictive gun control laws and very high crime rates. But my wife, when I met her, was a single mom living in Camden, New Jersey uh, in the 1990s when it was the murder capital of the United States. And so I did see through her experience that the restrictive gun control laws that were in place, as you say, either entrapped people who wanted a gun, who needed a gun to be able to protect themselves, but, but knew that they couldn't go through all of the, uh, the hoops and the red tape that the state put in their way. And then those violent criminals who didn't care what the laws were in the first place. Um, and, and so, you know, as you and I are talking here, I mean, it just strikes me that maybe this is something where, where we, the, those supporters of the Second Amendment, have to be more active and engaged in, in and talking to these organizations, because I do think there's a lot of common ground to be found. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that the that the previous um, presidential administration that we've had has opened the doors to a lot of groups um, to cross, uh, you know, boundaries that that really haven't been crossed in the past and get more information out when we're aligned on a common cause. Um, it's, it's amazing that your wife has had that experience living in New Jersey, you know, New Jersey, New York, um, those are those are some of the states that have some of the worst gun laws on the books, and they also have um, a lot of pocketed areas with high black populations, high crime. Um, it's still going on, even though that they have such strict laws on the books. Absolutely. So 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 getting back to the issue of the right to carry uh, and, and this Ninth Circuit opinion that says the right to bear arms basically means nothing uh, in the Second Amendment. Are you hopeful? Are you confident that the Supreme Court is going to uh, look at this issue and say, all right, we finally have to step in here. We've got to set the record straight. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for the makeup that we have now to be uh, a pro Second Amendment 
um, force in, in uh, making this decision. Um, it, it can be very precarious when we see that there's unfortunate decisions made at the lower levels and everything seems to be hinging on whether or not the Supreme Court even grants uh, a review of that case. Um, I'm hopeful that they will, especially with how passionate that uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett has been about uh, not only just gun ownership, but on making sure that um, that when when she had the opportunity that she gave that dissent against uh, nonviolent offenders uh, still being able to possess uh, guns and still exercise their Second Amendment rights. Yeah, that was that was a, a really key decision. Uh, unfortunately, you know, she was in the minority uh, in that opinion. It was a two one decision. And she was the one who said, look, the, the standard should be dangerous here, not just uh, uh, whether or not somebody has been convicted of a, a nonviolent felony offense. Because, as you say, you know, again, even when even when it comes to these nonviolent offenses involving firearms, um, uh, there was a, a piece that was written uh, by a woman named Emily Bazelon a couple of years ago for uh, for Slate. She actually wrote a book. She wrote a podcast uh, about her experience uh, in New York. She went and she sat in the gun court in Brooklyn for a period of a couple of months every day just to see who was showing up, who, who these defendants were. And what she found was that, you know, 70 percent of the defendants in Brooklyn's gun court were young black men who had no serious criminal history whatsoever. Their charge was possessing a firearm without a license. And they were looking at three and a half years in prison. Uh, and Emily Bazelon, you know, walked away. She didn't become a second amendment advocate after uh, you know, seeing this, but she did understand, okay, we're replacing the war on drugs with the war on guns. And I'm not sure that, that the outcome is going to be any different or any better. Uh, and, and so, you know, again, this seems to me like it would be a perfect opportunity for the court to set the record straight that no matter where you live, New York City, rural Virginia, Hawaii, that if the average citizen cannot carry a firearm for self-defense, then their rights are being infringed upon. That we that that same right to keep also includes the right to bear. And right now we have places where Frankly, we have places where the right to keep arms uh, isn't being respected, even after the Heller decision. But the right to bear arms uh, is seen as a privilege to be doled out by the state, not a right of the people. Yes. And what we see in these states, uh, you know, like New York, um, is when it's a May issue state and the state has broad, broad authority to decide who can and can't uh, receive a concealed carry license or a license to possess a firearm. Um, we see that a form of elitism starts coming through where it's only people that have the money and the resources and the connections and um, the reach to uh, to go through all of the bureaucracy required to own or to conceal carry a handgun. Only those are the ones who end up um, being able to avail themselves of that right. Absolutely. Well, again, Rachel, I got to say, I, I, I so appreciate your voice being out there. Uh, I, I am so used to, you know, looking at, at columns in uh, the, the mainstream media and rolling my eyes. And when I saw your piece of the Cincinnati Enquirer, I just went, yes, this is fantastic. This is so great. So thank you for using your voice uh, and for being an activist. I've got to ask you before we go, have you always been interested in this issue? How, how, how did you get involved and how did you decide that this was something that that is worth fighting for 
Yeah, I mean, so my dad is a, he's a pistol packing pastor. Um, my husband and I attend his church and um, we've always had a heart for making sure that uh, not only churches, but that all citizens could um, could carry out their second amendment rights. Uh, my husband competed in IDPA. Uh, he grew up in a community that was very friendly to guns. But the more that we started kind of venturing out of um, the bubbles of uh, Kentucky and Ohio, which are uh, very good about the Second Amendment, the more we started seeing that people who are in other places who um, in many cases need them even more than we do are not able to procure that right. Uh, single moms who are living in inner city neighborhoods and high crime areas, um, areas with lots of minorities, um, they are still being uh, held back from exercising that right. And, you know, writing that article was just so eye-opening because it was like I was getting taught history all over again. I had been taught that this, this movement, uh, the civil rights movement was very passive and that um, the participants in it were, were victims and they were passively waiting for the government to see that they were right. But that wasn't true. Um, as they were fighting for their rights, there were a lot of opposition to it and a lot of people who wanted to cause them harm. And it it's been shown by these law professors and by these very astute um, researchers and historians and, and just legal authorities that tracing it back, it was the ability to be armed and to have armed defense and to, and to use the Second Amendment that was able to, uh, to protect uh, the civil rights movement and allow it to carry out. And then, you know, tracing it back even further back to just getting out of slavery in colonial times when there were still was slavery. There were so many laws, Black Crow, Jim Crow laws against Black people owning guns and against Native Americans owning guns. Gun control has been at the forefront of limiting and discouraging minorities from owning guns for such a long time. And I, I really love for more people to get to know um, how that's been traced throughout our history. Well, listen, I would encourage everybody, uh, I'm going to provide a link to your column, uh, and I would encourage everybody to read it. And you cite a couple of uh, great, great books. Uh, Charles Cobb's This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. Uh, Charles Cobb was a civil rights activist, and this is sort of a, a firsthand history, but also uh, incorporating, you know, he did a lot of research, as you say, talking with civil rights activists in the 1950s and the 1960s about how the individual right of self-defense uh, allowed the civil rights movement to to be successful. Uh, Professor Nicholas Johnson's Negroes in the Gun, The Black Tradition of Arms is, I think it's one of the best history books I've ever read, uh, quite honestly. And yeah, as you say, he lays out the history doesn't just start in 1950, right? I mean, he, I think the one of the earliest cases he talks about was like 1803 or 1806. Uh, and it was a, uh, a, a pair of, I think it was a husband and wife who were free blacks, but a slave catcher tried to take them south. And thanks to the fact that they were armed, they were able to prevent that from happening. Uh, but I learned so much from, from these books and from this history. And this is, again, this isn't just, to me, this isn't just black history, this is American history. This is our story. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, I, there, there are so many incredible stories. You uh, highlight some of them, it was a great column. Uh, and Rachel SeaTac, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Will you come back at some point? Absolutely. Will I'm you so be one of my legal eagles when I have like law questions? Will you come back and can I talk with you? 
absolutely happy to happy to chat with you, Cam. Excellent. All right. Well, listen, hopefully we might get a chance to talk uh, pretty soon here if the Supreme Court accepts one of these uh, carry cases. They've they not only they have the Young versus Hawaii case that's going to be coming up here very soon, but uh, tomorrow in conference, they're going to be considering New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. That's a challenge to uh, New York's carry laws. So fingers crossed that we uh, we see the court uh, accept uh, one of these cases. And in the meantime, Rachel Seatag, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Thank you. I really do appreciate Rachel joining us on the program. And uh, like I said, we may be talking with her next week because uh, I'm very curious to see what the court does with New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. Um, I, I felt pretty good about the, uh, the, the court taking that case. Uh, now with the en banc decision coming out of the Ninth Circuit in Young versus Hawaii, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, that case may present... Uh, a, a more clean question for the court. But but honestly, the split in the circuits, the you know, the Seventh Circuit has said, yeah, there's a right to carry. Ninth Circuit says, no, there's no right to carry in the Second Amendment. There is that 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 clear split in the circuits right now. So I I am semi-confident. <laughs> uh, I wish I could say I was 100 percent, you know, locked, solid guarantee, but you never know. But I'm 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 I'll, I'll even upgrade it from semi to fairly confident. I am fairly confident that the court is going to grant cert to one of these two cases, uh, either the Corlett case or the Young case, which, again, the court could hear in conference in maybe a month or two. Uh, they could decide to accept that case. It, it you know, and a lot goes into whether or not uh, what 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 the uh, court decides to do, how they decided to take these cases. But the split is there. The question needs to be resolved, uh, and I suspect that before long, the uh, court is going to grant cert uh, for either one of these cases. We'll know perhaps as early as next week whether or not it will be the New York case, and if the justices decline to accept that case, then uh, then a lot is going to be riding on Young versus Hawaii. All right, let's turn our attention now to our uh, good deed of the day. Our armed citizen story, our recidivist report, again, uh, making the case that, you know, look, do we really need more gun control laws in the books? A, besides a constitutional issue, which should not be ignored, but besides that, what about the laws on the books right now that are not being enforced against violent criminals? You know, Rachel Seatag and I were just talking about people who are going to jail, who are going to prison for, for simply possessing a gun without a license that they can't get, Right. Meanwhile, you've got headlines like this. Decatur man gets probation in gun shooting outside of White Oaks Mall in 2018. Uh, Sangamon County Court. Decatur man involved in a shooting outside of White Oaks Mall in 2018. Sentenced to 30 months probation in uh, Sangamon County. This is in Illinois. 24-year-old Malik Harper was facing one to three years behind bars, but he's not going to have to do any of that. Uh, According to the uh, local news there, Harper had been in an argument with his girlfriend at the mall's southwest parking lot on December 28, 2019. The female was walking towards the mall entrance when Harper, who had earlier been escorted out of the mall for public drunkenness, fired a single shot from a uh, handgun into the air. He fled into the mall before being apprehended. He was taken into custody on the uh, second level of a Macy's 
He also, by the way, faces a domestic battery charge in Macon County, stemming from a uh, incident last October. Uh, in this court, uh, the circuit judge, Raylene Grischow, said that she was swayed by Harper's commitment at being a productive citizen, uh, noting that he had a welding apprenticeship uh, indicator, noting that he is attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and anger management classes. He said, uh, what I did was embarrassing. He said, I've been saying sorry since the incident. Sangamon County State's Attorney Dan Wright argued for a prison sentence for Harper, noting that his actions could have killed somebody in a crowded mall or in the residential area around the mall. He said that a prison sentence for Harper may also have deterred others from committing gun crimes in the county. Now, uh, this is not the only, by the way, this is not the only uh, uh, individual sentenced to probation for fairly significant crimes uh, in this courtroom this week. Uh, on Tuesday, a Springfield woman received 24 months of drug court probation for her role in the robbery of two banks in uh, Springfield. So, look, I don't think Mr. Harper should have gone to prison for the rest of his life. I'm not even sure that a, a three-year sentence would have been appropriate in this case, given that he does appear to be taking accountability for himself and trying to improve himself. But I, I am with the prosecutor in this, that, that there needed to be some sort of punishment beyond mere probation, because this was an act that could have killed somebody. What goes up must come down. And so that round fired into the air in anger. Thankfully, it didn't strike anybody, but it could have. So I would have preferred to see at least some time uh, behind bars, but we didn't get it this time around. All right, today's Armed citizen story from uh, Washington State, where a 19-year-old, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the town. Every time I try to do it, I just get emails from Washingtonians saying, that's not how you pronounce it. Puyallup, I think is how you say it. Probably not. 19-year-old shoots a two of three armed intruders. Keep in mind, by the way, you've got the folks like Stephen Colbert saying that you should be 21 before you can own a firearm. I, I guess that means that uh, this 19-year-old would just have been the victim of these armed robbers rather than uh, being able to protect himself. According to the Seattle Times, two men shot by a tenant in an apartment complex after three armed intruders entered the residence intending to, quote, commit a burglary or a home invasion robbery. Investigators believe that the two men were shot along with a third. They uh, say that all three were armed when they entered this apartment around 10.50 Tuesday night. Once inside the residence, the three men were confronted by an armed 19-year-old who fired multiple rounds at the intruders. Officers arrived to find a chaotic scene with two individuals having been shot, multiple reports of individuals and vehicles fleeing the area. The two individuals who had been shot, both of whom were males in their early 20s, located some distance from each other. That uh, third suspect is still being shot or still being, uh, excuse me, uh, still being sought, not shot. Uh, police there say the tenant's self-defense claim will be evaluated to ensure that it is within state law once criminal charges are filed against the armed intruders. Police say the 19-year-old is cooperating in the investigation. Well, it sure sounds like a clear-cut case of self-defense to me. Based on what we know, we will uh, follow this case. And uh, if they bring any charges, we're certainly going to let you know about that because I, I, based on what we know right now, that would be um, be a pretty egregious abuse of justice. Uh, and finally today, our good deed of the day. Take a look at this right here. This is from uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. Uh, this police officer flagged down to uh, help tie a tie. Michelle Lowe, 
was trying to take some uh, photos of her son Elijah and his friend. It's their senior year of high school. Wanted to make sure that they looked good, but none of them knew how to tie a tie. And so when Michelle saw police officer Adam Price driving down the road, she flagged him down and asked, do you know how to tie a tie? And as it turns out, officer Adam Price said, uh, you know, it's, it's been a while for me, too, but I think I can remember. And uh, he, he did. Saving the day. WUSA says in the end, the interaction between Michelle, her son, and his friend with the officer, uh, much more beneficial than just tying a tie. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help out Elijah Lowe, his mom, Michelle, uh, Officer Adam Price there in Clarksville, Tennessee. We thank you very much for your very good deed. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I do want to thank you for being a part of the program, as well as uh, thanking Rachel Seatack for joining me today. Uh, Monday, expect an update from the Supreme Court one way or the other. We will uh, have the latest for you here on Cam and Company, as well as the latest out of Washington, D.C., where the Democrats, again, uh, insistent that they are going to try to get gun control, some sort of gun control, uh, through the U.S. Senate. We've also... Uh, seen um, hints that executive actions may be coming from the uh, White House on guns. We'll have the latest for you on that as well. Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss one of these programs. On Rumble.com, look for Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Also look for Bearing Arms Cam and Company on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, and don't forget, throughout the weekend as well, we won't have a show for you on Friday, but we will be updating BarryAndArms.com throughout the day and throughout the weekend with the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. We'll talk to you here on the show again on Monday. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.